I'm Parker Moss, and I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. Now, genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk about this word more, the G word, genomics. Today we'll be discussing cancer and the life, the lifestyle and the achievements of an expert in the field. We'll discuss the role of genomics in cancer research and at the end some quick fire questions on the hot topics in cancer research. You were joined today by a real world leader in the field, Professor Charlie Swanton. Charlie, welcome to the G Word. Thank you, Parker. Nice to see you. Great to have you here. So, Charlie, I'm going to do my very best to introduce you, and this may take some time because you have been a very busy guy. Uh, Let me go through your achievements. So you're a physician scientist, specifically you're an immune oncologist. You're the senior group leader at the Francis Crick Institute, where your lab focuses on tumor evolution. You're a thoracic medical oncologist at UCL um, and at University College London Hospital. You're Cancer Research UK's chief clinician and director of the UK Lung Cancer Centre of Excellence, where you're the lead investigator of Tracer X Lung, a major trial focusing on non-small cell lung cancer. You're the co-founder of Achilles Therapeutics, which is a biotech company funded by Syncona that raised over $200 million a couple of years ago. That was one of the most successful raises from a UK biotech in recent years. You're the Royal Society Napier Professor in Cancer. You've got a fellowship at the Academy of Medical Sciences. You won the Paul Marks Prize for Cancer Research. I found over 210 papers that you've published over the years. And most exciting of all, you are the lead of the Lung Cancer Genomic England Clinical Interpretation Partnership, the GSIP, where you work with people like me at Genomics England. So I really hope I've got all of that right. It's a pleasure to have you here, Charlie. Thank you, Parker. That's very kind of you. (laughs) Thanks, Charlie. Okay, so maybe we could just start by hearing a little bit about Charlie Swanton who you are as a person, and really where this lifelong fascination in cancer began. So, um, thank you. I guess when I was in my teens, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I slightly fell into medicine. I, I was a bit, a bit bit lazy at school, didn't really, you know, fathom what I was going to be doing 10 years from, from then. And um, so I went to medical school, and I actually got hooked almost immediately. I, I realized this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, a little bit late in the day. Really enjoyed lectures, really enjoyed the sort of the basics, the preclinical work, which a lot of people don't really enjoy. Um, but I did, I got really hooked on the biochemistry, the cell physiology, cell pathology, particularly pathology when things go wrong, to uh, try to understand why things go wrong, I fascinating. As a kid, I always used to love Lego. Uh, I love building stuff, um, you know, often without instructions. And um, I think in many ways, actually, this idea of building something without instructions informed the rest of my career. And I think that's in a funny sort of way, it's a little bit like what science is. You, you, you build from the bottom up um, through series of observations, a, a structure that you hope is as solid as possible. And so during my medical school years, my father was diagnosed with um, a very nasty cancer that, that we actually at the time back in 1991. Um, no one had a clue what it was. It was at the base of his spine. He became very unwell very quickly. And, and you know, he, I think the world of my dad, he was he was a very um, uh, bright, committed NHS cardiologist who built a unit at the Middlesex Hospital in UCH pretty much from scratch, from him being the sole cardiologist to a, uh, a massive department with over 20 consultants before it moved to Bart's. And, um, you know, I was very proud of what he did. And and I thought, you know, this is this is quite cool. And you know, when he became sick, I just thought, my God, I hadn't planned for this. This wasn't on the agenda at medical school. And um, through a series of complications, um, eventually he was sort of about to go to surgery on his on his spine for this spinal tumour. In those days, this was done without a tissue biopsy, let alone genomics. And um, one of the orthopaedic surgeons said, look, actually, at the last minute, the 11th hour before he's used to go into theatre, you know, we're not going to uh, operate on Dr. Swanson until we know what this tumour at the base of the spine is. They thought it was something called a chordoma, a very rare tumour. You've probably seen a few in uh, Genomics England. 
I think they have these brachyuri um, mutations. I probably only come across maybe 10 in my entire 20 year career in oncology. They're incredibly rare. And the orthopedic surgeon insisted that they weren't going to go into theatre until they had a, a had a um, tissue biopsy. Now, at the time, this was quite radical because the neurosurgeons wanted to get on and operate because dad was losing sensation and what have you and things were getting quite acute. But this orthopedic surgeon put his foot down and they got a biopsy. It turned out to be a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and he had chemo radiotherapy. And, you know, 32 years later, he only retired from the NHS last year in the middle of COVID at the age of 74. So I think that gives you an idea what the power of cancer care can be. And most importantly, at the time at medical school, I just thought, wow, somebody had spent their life researching cancer biology and and, uh, cancer chemotherapy and optimal combinations of, of chemotherapy drugs. He had this ridiculously complex regi- regime regimen called pace bomb and and i thought i want to do this i'm not quite sure how i'm going to do it or what i'm going to do but i i want to be involved in this because because of somebody's you know lifetime research and commitment to clinical care my father was now cured and you know in my sort of rather naive way at the time i thought this would be a great thing to do and and to uh, try to understand you know the mechanics the building blocks behind cancer so 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 then so then i did a bsc at medical school and i got totally hooked on on lab work and i thought i'll, I'll do a phd um and that was the first year of the ucl mb phd program and i sort of fell into nick jones's lab at the um what was the um, imperial cancer research fund in lincoln's in fields i studied the cell cycle and what a time it was to study the cell cycle because in that period between 1994 and when I finished my PhD in 1998, pretty much every molecular building block of the cell cycle was being discovered. It was like these Lego pieces sort of coming to life in front of me. It was just absolutely amazing. Every week in, in nature, every month in cell, there'd be another critical cell cycle regulator. It was just such an exciting time. And, you know, the whole molecular underpinnings of cancer were being revealed. In that decade, I guess, in between the mid-80s and the mid-90s, that's when it was all happening. That's not to say it's not happening now, it is, but it was a particularly special time, I think. First of all, I just want to thank you for sharing that very personal story. It's amazing how many people in this field are drawn into it because of a personal family story. And I'm just so happy your one was uh, had a happy ending. No, it really did. It really did. You know, he's the grandfather to my two children now, and he's a great grandpa. He, you know, he's, he's a great guy. Well, we're, I'm raising a glass to Mr. Uh, Swanton Senior here, and that, that, that's a very, very happy story. Maybe you can just give our listeners a little bit of a sense of what a day in the life of a research scientist is in the Crick Institute. I know that you supervise a wet lab. I expect you're not pipetting yourself very often these days. Uh, you also do a lot of uh, dry lab work um, right at the leading edge of uh, machine learning. Maybe just give a sense of what, what a typical day looks like. Well, I think the beauty about my job is is really you're your own boss um you, you know you're the master or you're the mistress of your own destiny everything you have is because of grants that you and your team write by and large um you're reviewed at the crick every five years and if you're not performing you're out the rules are very simple and in those five years you can pretty much do anything you like as long as you're pushing forward the boundaries of discovery research so that obviously comes with huge responsibility, but also with great freedom. So I can literally do anything I like on a day-to-day basis. Of course, there are commitments in the diary that, that, you know, as part of the process, you're on thesis committee panels for PhD students, for every PhD student you supervise, you have to be on at least one thesis committee for somebody else. And obviously supervising junior scientists is a great privilege and a lot of fun. Um, These are the brightest and the best minds in the world coming to the Crick who are bold and brave and do very special things um, at a very young age. I often think the, the, the best scientists actually are often in their 20s because their risk, you know, they, they take on risks that perhaps, you know, older dyed and war people like me wouldn't take on because, you know, there's too much at stake. So often the best science, I think, is done in your 20s. And so, so I spend a lot of time supervising PhD students and postdocs and going through projects with them and what they're doing in the lab, talking to um, colleagues, random chance encounters at the Crick. The beauty of the Crick is it's structured in such a way that it's built for chance encounters. 
there's only one really pretty much one central staircase which everybody goes up and down it can take you you know an hour just to get to the the front of the front entrance of the crick and back to your office by the time you bumped into so many people and that's the beauty of it in many ways it just means you're always late for every meeting i remember walking up that staircase with you and that, that staircase is at the centromere isn't it it is yeah exactly it's the centromere spot on it's exactly what it is it's, it's shaped like a chromosome the crick and and the and the staircase is the centromere and and it's it is it is really these it's the centerpiece of of the entire building and it and it's where everybody meets and random chance encounters occur and and where people then get spin out for coffee and lunch and what have you and sit down and talk science and there are very few jobs where you can have that freedom and where you can literally just bump into people and sit down and if your diary's free enough have a coffee and talk about an interesting result or a problem or a challenge or a question. It's an extraordinary job. I mean, I had never any idea, you know, 30 years ago when I was leaving school that I'd be doing a job like this today where, you know, I, you know, I get back from holiday and look forward to going to work on a Monday morning. I know a lot of my mates, are, you know, have very tough jobs. And I'm not saying my job isn't tough, but it's tough, but it's also it comes with huge enjoyment, reward and excitement. And, and it's just great privilege um, working with the brightest and the best minds in the world. And it is a great time to be in science. But so whilst you're wandering around on the staircases, drinking coffee. and doing Yes, it's not quite like that. But... What, 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 what are your what, give us a sense of the size of your team and what they are actually doing, how they divide their time. Okay, so the lab at the moment, it goes in fluxes, but at the moment, I'd say probably 65% of the lab are dry and about 35% are wet. So what we're trying to do is understand cancer evolution in, in lung cancer. And we're running this trial, as you mentioned, called Tracer X, which is a longitudinal program aiming to recruit 840 patients. We've actually pretty much recruited them all now. We've recruited about 820, I think, at the last um, count. And we are sampling their primary tumours through multi-region sequencing that you'll be familiar with because you very generously um, sequenced um, genomes for us over the last few years. And we are subjecting to multi-region sequencing to try to understand where the first cell came from, crudely speaking, and how it evolved and adapted over space and time. We um, ask patients if we can access tissue at relapse and one or two patients very generously donate their bodies to medical science um, very sadly after death and, and we can then analyze multiple regions of the patient's metastasis to understand how the tumor really evolved from the very early small tumor to a very large metastatic one to, to you know really again get to, to get to grips with the underlying mechanics of this dreadful disease to, to understand how it evades the immune system how it evades drug drug exposure how it spreads and you know, get to the very heart of the biology behind the disease. So, sorry, I haven't really answered your question. So we've got about um, two thirds of the lab working on the genomics behind that problem. And as you know, that, that is a massive problem. It's a massive challenge. We've got probably now close to 5,000 uh, tumor exomes in the lab that we're trying to understand at a very, very deep depth. And um, then in parallel, we take observations from Tracer X and test them functionally in the wet lab. So, for example, um, we're working on a story that's sort of in late development um, where about five years ago we identified this mutagenic process called APABEC being enriched in the branches of the tumor's evolutionary trees. So we've modeled this in animal models to understand how if you induce APABEC mutagenesis later on in evolution, that helps with tumor adaptation and growth. And I've got a very talented postdoc working on that problem. But, of course, you know, the wet lab work is very slow in comparison to the dry lab work. And but but the wet lab work is really the only place where you can test function and you can put hypotheses to the test. So the hypotheses come out of the tracer X genomics work by and large, and then they're then tested in the wet lab. And even though the wet lab is slow, I think something that has really changed in the last decade is the cycle time between dry lab hypothesis generation and then validation in the wet lab and then back again has really accelerated and also reduced in cost, hasn't it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and and the the tools that we have at our disposal now are just mind blowing um, in terms of what we can do now compared to what we could do during my PhD back in the mid nineties when it would take, you know, three days to sequence cyclin D one 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 gene, three hundred amino acids, thousand base pairs. Um, by the time you've broken a few gels and and screwed up a few sequencing reactions, it took about three days to sequence 
the best part of a thousand base pairs. Now you can tell us how many genomes you're sequencing every day. I mean, it's just extraordinary. It's a lot Peter by today. So I'm sure we will return back to Tracer X and truncal mutations and branch mutations later in the discussion. But what I would love to give a sense of um, is um, the, the excitement of discovery of a, of a scientist like you. I know a lot of the day job is, is hard slog, uh, not just with the science, but also with grant applications and writing research papers. But I, I'm sure that in your long and distinguished career, you've had these two or three uh, what did you call them? Cocaine moments. Uh, yeah, yeah, eureka moments that for me was like the equivalent of a class A drug, I guess. Eureka moments uh, where, where you've made uh, major discoveries uh, and I'm sure the adrenaline was pumping for nights and nights after that. Perhaps you could kind of talk us through these uh, eureka moments and explain uh, what they were uh, and what they felt like. But first of all, Parker, I should say before I start that I've never taken a class A drug, but I can imagine a eureka moment is a bit like taking a class A drug. <laughs> So um, if we can move on from that um, slight deviation to, to the eureka moments, I think the, 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 the most amazing thing about scientific discoveries when they happen, um, and they don't happen that often, but, you know, at, at this sort of level, but when they do, you just think to yourself, you know, you're unraveling rules of nature. And that and that's just a wonderful feeling, you know. Um, I can't really explain it. Um you know, somebody who's obsessed with biology and the beauty of the of, of the natural world, understanding how and why a cell divides is is just so extraordinary. And I'm not saying we've made any major con contributions to that, but but we've, you know, in in our own way, we've we've made we've ha we've had some insights. And I think when I was a a PhD student in in Nick Jones's lab, Nick, Nick is sort of one of my long-standing mentors. Um, uh, he, he's a he's a great guy, very very clever scientist. Ran a lab at the ICRF um, in in the eighties and nineties before he moved to Manchester to run the Manchester Institute, and um, he allowed me to work in his lab as sort of a medical student. We became great friends over the next decade, and he basically just let me do what I want, um, you know, under supervision. But you know, he 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 let me make mistakes and learn the hard way. After about eighteen months of my PhD, things weren't really working out, and. We had a thesis committee meeting and um, it was crystal clear that things had gone rather badly wrong and the controls hadn't worked and I wasn't able to replicate some some prior work that had been published in in, um, in the literature. And um, um, the thesis committee said, Look, you know, Charlie, we appreciate you've worked quite hard. You've got two options. You can, um, one, go back to medical school and call it a day or two, change PhD projects, neither of which were particularly appetizing at the time. But I said, you know, I'm, you know, I love this. I, I don't know why, but I, you know, despite the fact I've got no data and I'm 18 months from finishing, it, this is an amazing, amazing job. Um, I, I think I might get somewhere if I change projects. So they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I've been studying the cell cycle. I've been studying the G1 phase of the cell cycle, principally how um, cells get into the S, into S phase um, through activation of cyclin CDK4 complexes and CDK6 complexes with cyclin D family. Now, this, this family tumor suppressor genes had just been cloned, the P21 family, but it wasn't really known how they worked. And they said, well, what do you want to do then? I said, well, what I'm quite interested in doing is understanding how P21 binds the cyclin, cyclin D1, D2, and D3. And um, they said, well, what do you, how are you going to do that? I said, well, I've been, Nick and I have been talking about this. And, and um, one way of doing this would be to do sort of uh, yeast 2 hybrid screen and just mutate cyclin d and see what happens if you can um, prevent cyclin d from binding p21 um anyway that didn't work um and so we we did it the hard way which is basically over a three-month period of the summer mutating every surface exposed amino acid on cyclin d um, until i found two mutants that no longer bound p21 or p27 the tumor suppressor genes that block the kinase activity of the holoenzyme, that's cyclin D and CDK4 or CDK6. But despite the fact that, that cyclin D could no longer bind P21, it could still bind the kinase and activate the kinase. So I thought, oh, eureka. Well, it wasn't quite a eureka moment. It was a, wow, thank God for that. I've got the first positive result of my entire PhD in uh, uh, right at the beginning of year three, six months from writing up. So the pressure was on then to start delivering some results so I could get the rest of chapter one. Um, and um, so round about that time, um, Chang and Moore had just published in Science cloning, or the, or the finding, sorry, 
of um, Kaposi's sarcoma herpes virus, which is a gamma herpes virus, DNA herpes virus, like all herpes viruses, that um, encoded a very, very complex genome that was full of extraordinary toys, essentially, including a, a cyclin D homologue that had been called K-cyclin. And this was right at the beginning of, I mean, bear in mind, Parker, this was 1995, 96, 96. So the internet was only just coming in and, and email was pretty nascent and all rather clunky. Um, and so blast searches and what have you, where you sort of align proteins were very much in their infancy. But align a cyclin D1 I did and up came K-cyclin, this viral cyclin. And what was amazing about it is it aligned almost perfectly except for one key region, which just happened to be this region that I had mutated and no longer bound P21. So I sort of ran into Nick's office and said, Nick, what do you think of this? I showed him the alignment. I said, Nick, you know, you've got this viral cycling. And, and Nick had had a massive background in adenoviruses, DNA tumor virus. So, you know, um, fortune favored the prepared mind. So Nick was right on this because he, he had spent a lot of his career studying E1A and um, adenoviral proteins that inactivate um, RB to drive E2F activation. So um, he was totally prepared for this. So, so what I said to him, do you think it's possible that this viral cyclin has mutated, has evolved um, to become sort of an uber cyclin, if you like, that combine the kinase, but can no longer um, be inhibited by P21 because it's mutated these surface residues that I've mutated in the human cyclin, and I also find um, um, can no longer bind P21. He said, Charlie, it's a great idea, but you've got to understand it is a long shot, but I think you should try it. Anyway, so try it I did. Um, it took about two and a half months, three months to actually get the cycling from um, a lab in Germany because people were, in those days were very protective over reagents and it, it was getting hold of stuff was a lot harder back then than it was today. And it came over, the cycling came over in an envelope on a piece of blotting paper and I wasted no time in growing it up in bacteria and attaching a, a, a GST tag and purifying the protein and then catching it on a GST column and then um, running my P21 S35 label protein and my um, CDK46 S35 label protein. And bingo, at about one in the morning, the block came out and there you were, there you had it. The viral cycling could bind the kinase, but couldn't bind P21 or P27. So much to the annoyance of poor Nick's wife, I phoned him up very late at night, very in the early hours of the morning. I said, Nick, you gotta you gotta you gotta listen to this. And I told him about this, and Nick just goes, Wow, that is that's super cool. And I thought this is super cool. And I and the blot was coming out, I could see it was just the dream blot. And and that for me was the Eureka moment that, that made me realise I want to spend the rest of my life in this job. Charlie, you've done a great job of explaining the excitement of that discovery. Now, maybe you could just play a little bit of that back to our lay audience and explain what that means for patients, what you had discovered. Today. OK, so what does that mean for patients? Well, I think it means a few things. Um, I mean, the first first thing I think it shows that the power, first of all, the power of evolution and, and viruses in general to be, in this case, it um, had poached the gene from the human genome, pirated the gene from the human genome, and over replication, over successive replications in humans over probably decades, if not centuries, had mutated itself to optimize its role in driving replication of the human cell. So because these cells, these viruses don't have the tools to be able to replicate their genomes. So they have to use the human cell system to replicate their own genomes. And to do that, they have to express this cycling to engage the human cell cycle machinery to overcome the tumor suppressor genes that normally block cancer development to drive replication so that its own DNA, the viral DNA, can be synthesized. So I think it proves lots of things. First of all, the power of evolution over a short time frame. Um, secondly, the importance of the cell cycle machinery. Thirdly, the importance of these tumor suppressor genes that normally act to switch the cell cycle machinery off, really formally, you know, or, or adding to a body of evidence at the time, I should say, um, that really demonstrated the importance of these, these proteins that had just been discovered. And um, uh, I think for me, it was just real insight into how human tumor viruses, viruses that cause cancer in humans work. 
And and I think that early initiation into evolution and viruses and cancer really guided the rest of my career. And I guess why would perhaps why we're talking today. It's a really beautiful example. And it is amazing to see evolution at pace. And you can see these these life cycles at such in, in such short phases uh, in biology and as we're doing in COVID today. That was your initial eureka moment. Perhaps we can now skip to um, out of the 90s into the 2020s uh, to talk about uh, Tracer X lung, which from my perspective, having followed this for many years now, it seems to have been a program that was conceived very much from the beginning as something that would end up in drug discovery and something that would be directly useful to patients. And that's something I, I really admire. I, um, and out of it has come some real um, revelations that I think were controversial at the time about truncal mutations and these so-called neoantigens. Maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about how you painstakingly curated this um, this this cohort and what you've tried to achieve. Um, and if you could put it in language that um, patients that maybe have lung cancer and are listening in today would understand that would be terrific. Sure, Parker. Yeah, I think to sort of really um, explain it properly, I need to rewind perhaps um, a decade and a half, if that's okay. So to explain how I got into this. Um, so um, after my PhD, I, I became a qualified doctor in about the late 1999. And then I basically did nothing but junior medical training till about 2003, 2004, um, when I became a specialist registrar in oncology. And then I split my time then between m my clinical training, understanding and learning about cancer medicine, drug resistance, um, and the inevitability of drug resistance, despite these new so-called magic bullets that, that were on the front cover of time in the late 90s, you know, these targeted therapies that we all thought heralded the onsets of cures in cancer, which unfortunately have been a, a bit disappointing. I mean, I think they, they, they've been very effective in many ways, but the vast majority of patients with advanced tumours, that is tumours that are spread beyond the primary sites, are not cured by targeted therapies. Um, and resistance occurs in almost every patient we treat over time. And it was that problem of that challenge of resistance, going back, rewinding 10 years to my PhD, of, of evolution, almost in action in the patient, that, that really framed the next you know 15 years of my career um, at, at Lincoln's in Fields and then subsequently at the Crick. And it, and it really started from a very simple question with, with the advent of the sort of sequencing technologies that you and many others are using. How are we going to use this clinically and what can it tell you about evolution in a patient? Very simple question. In other words, how does drug resistance happen in patients in real time? Uh, you know, bear in mind, you know, before the advent of high throughput sequencing, you know, there was this view that evolution was something that happened slowly over hundreds of years, with some exceptions like, you know, the, the, the very famous moth in the Industrial Revolution that changed um, it, it, the colour of its wings over literally a few short years. But by and large, you know, if, it seems to me that evolution, the evolution of resistance in a patient, very much like microbial drug resistance, uh, par excellence demonstrated this could happen exceedingly quickly and we needed to understand why. So that the power of sequencing to, to be able to sort of digit, digitally infer why this was happening struck me as being very exciting. So um, when sequencing was just coming in, the community was sequencing single biopsies and, and, and deducing how cancer worked from single biopsies. And I thought, well, this is just doesn't really seem right to me that you can describe a cancer from a single biopsy when we know you know, the reality, when you look at these cancers under a microscope, they're very, very different in different regions of the tumour. So I wondered if you could, back in 2011, when I was a, um, just a very junior PI at ICRF or the Lincoln's in Fields Lab, whether you could take multiple biopsies from the same tumour and begin to infer how that tumour had evolved from a single cell. And so we did, we did one experiment, which at the time was, you know, the best part of £30,000, which was you, you, you take 10 biopsies from a patient with a very large kidney cancer, um, having been resected at nephrectomy, take that to the lab and, and, and biopsy multiple regions and ask, um, if you sequence each region, does it give you the same result as perhaps many had assumed it would back then? Or would, would you get a different result, but all linked to a sort of common ancestor? A trunk, if you like, and that's exactly what we found. That, that you know there were driver mutations in the trunk. That, that you know VHL being the obvious one that that's in uh, the vast majority of clear cell carcinomas of the kidney, and then you have 
branch mutations, some of which add additional fitness to the evolving tumour um, in different regions of the tumour that are spatially separated. And of course, what that means is you put your biopsy needle in and you'll miss, you'll miss one driver mutation at the expense of another, perhaps. Um, and sort of moving beyond that, we thought, well, this is, this is obviously a very easy and elegant way of, of really understanding how tumours evolve over space and time. And we put forward to CRUK that we could do this, but at scale, instead of looking at five or ten patients, we could really begin to understand how cancers evolved longitudinally from diagnosis to recurrence or cure in patients in the disease that I was treating at the time, lung cancer. And we were very fortunate to have um, a very large, actually CRUK's largest grant at the time, that, that really catalyzed the lung center that I work in now, many careers, um, um, brilliant people that, that have come through TracerX that are now running their own independent groups, way, way cleverer than me, that are running their own laboratory teams to understand cancer evolution. And that's perhaps been the most rewarding aspect of all of this, seeing them do so well. And, and I think we've made a few you know, discoveries that, you know, like that eureka moment I had during my PhD, have sort of kept me up at night with just fascination and excitement that we're really beginning to understand you know, the mechanics and nuts and bolts, the building bricks, the Lego bricks, if you like, of, of how these cancers evolve and what we could do better to improve patients' lives. And it's been fascinating to see how you've taken actually a relatively small cohort, but you've looked at it longitudinally, you've looked spatially both inter and intratumorally within the tumours and within different tumours, and you've looked at all of the different omics, um, not just DNA, it started with the baseline of DNA, and then you validated that in animal models um, and generated some really landmark insights. So uh, again, in his lay languages, you can um, manage. What do you think some of the um, most important insights from TracerX are for lung cancer patients today? Uh, um, there are a few. I mean, I don't want to say they're most important because it sounds like I'm bragging. I I'll tell you the, the, the insights that I've um, been most intrigued by, and I think the community can decide whether it's forgive me if it's exciting or not but I think you know for me what what I think has opened my eyes is that um, first of all if you look in tracer x in in the data and this is held up to scrutiny in the larger cohorts it's it's not diversity of point mutations that affects outcome or this is strongly associated with outcome it's actually copy number events it's these large-scale chromosomal events we call it macro evolutionary events rather than sort of micro evolution it's it's large-scale rearrangements of the what, what Goldschmidt called the serial uh, chemical constituents of the chromosome into a new spatially different order. It's, it's, it's essentially, dare I say it, and, and it's not, but I'll say it anyway, because it gives you an idea of, of, of the scale at which, you know, this is happening. It's, it's not dissimilar to speciation, where you've got very large chromosomal rearrangements that, you know, chromosomal fusions, translocations, amplifications, deletions, rewiring of the genome that is associated with poor clinical outcome. So, so that's got us thinking over the last four years, why? And it turns out there are lots of reasons why. Um, first of all, we've got pretty good evidence now that this is driving selection later on in tumor evolution. And most importantly, it's driving evasion from the immune system. So one way in which chromosomal instability manifests itself as tumors evolve is by loss of what we call HLA, which stands for human leukocyte antigen. What is HLA? Well, it's a, um, it's a protein um, that's on, on most of our cells in our body that, it, that, that, that recognizes infection and actually recognizes cancer by presenting cancer mutations or viral peptides, viral proteins to the immune system to shout out at the immune system, hey, look, I'm foreign, come and attack me and kill me. Um, and, and so what happens is these HLA molecules present cancer mutations to a T cell, and the T cell recognizes that um, cancer cell that's got this HLA molecule with the cancer mutations being foreign and kills it. And obviously one way that a cancer cell can escape is by disrupting HLA. And one way it does that is actually by deleting the chromosome fragment 6P. On chromosome 6P, we see these deletions. And the intriguing thing is, and this was another eureka moment that Nikki McGranahan made in the lab, this and Rachel Rosenthal, two phenomenally talented scientists, really, really smart. They found that this region on chromosome 6P was deleted um, in a very significant minority of cancers, about 40%, 40% of untreated lung cancers have lost one or more of these 
HLA molecules. Now, that's interesting because at that time, back in 2017, it was still contentious whether immune evasion was happening in early stage untreated cancers. And they showed it was. It was happening incredibly frequently. So that was the first thing that really, I think, you know, one of the first two things that came out of trace rates. The other thing was um, Nikki and Rachel also showed that um, clonal neoantigens we, th we think are important. That is, um, so these are the trunk mutations that are exposed to the immune system as being foreign. And the more you have, the better the prognosis, it turns out, and the more likely you respond to these new class of drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so what that tells you is that these, these mutations that are present in every tumor cell are the flags, if you like, of the cancer's own destruction, if you can only power the immune system properly to recognize the cancer. Um, so I think those are sort of three key findings that, that, that excite me to the future. And it turns out that chromosomal instability feeds into that system to either delete HLA or indeed delete the, the truncal neoantigens themselves over time. So chromosomal instability is a way of rewiring the genome to, to sort of optimize the cancer's genome to evade the immune system, we think. So it's fascinating how you've gone from this basic science to really understand uh, chromosomal instability and how the immune system is uh, evaded and also the important role of truncal mutations to now uh, translating this into a potential new modalities of therapy uh, that can be tested directly in humans and used in the clinic. And uh, you've done something which I think um, was very unusual a couple of decades ago, but is happening more and more, uh, which is that great clinical academic scientists are also um, uh, interacting with, engaging with, and actually becoming leaders also in the biotech world. Uh, perhaps you can tell me um, a little bit about what Achilles is trying to achieve uh, off the back of some of these great discoveries, and again, what that will mean for the patients. So um, the clonal neoantigen work, I, I should have said earlier, was done in collaboration. We, we did the genomic side. The, the, immune, the immunology side was done by a very good friend and, and talented scientist, Sergio Casada. And, and Sergio and I actually, you know, we worked on this from the outset. And it's as much his, his idea as it is, is ours. And it was a sort of shared adventure. And that's one of the beauties about science is that you can um, collaborate with people you respect and like and whose work you admire and explore uh, common areas of interest together. And that's what we did. And it's what we've been doing ever since. And, and you know, it's just a great privilege to work with these with these colleagues and friends and and together Nikki and Rachel worked with Andrew Furness in Sergio's group and showed that the importance of clonal neoantigens and Sergio's group showed that you could find t-cells in tumors that specifically recognize these clonal neoantigens so on the basis of that we we decided with Carl Peggs and and Mark Laudel that we might be able to um, raise some startup money to see if we could expand these t-cells find them in more tumors expand them and maybe one day give them back to patients and and so over about 18 months we um pitched our idea much as you do on the dragon's den or even the apprentice <laughs> um to various um uh, vcs and 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 we bumped into a, a company called syncona who um were fantastic and we we were introduced to this chap called iraj ali who is actually um, a remarkable man who, who um, had a PhD in, in biochemistry, um, who worked uh, as a management consultant for some years and then became a sort of biotech uh, guru uh, and set up several successful companies. Uh, and then he met us and he really bought into this concept from the beginning. And the concept's quite simple, which is, you know, targeted therapies in the 90s came in with great fanfare, as I said. The problem with targeted therapies is that every patient develops resistance, pretty much every patient. And the reason for that is, in the advanced disease setting, is that cancers are so complex and there are, so, there are billions, if not trillions of cells in any single patient that resistance is almost a fait accompli. There'll always be one cell with a resistance mutation or a resistance mechanism that can overcome the drug in question. And, and it turned out from our work and others that those mutations that the tumors, these targeted therapies were targeting were truncal mutations present in every tumor cell. But you're only targeting one truncal mutation. So we wondered what happens if you, if you could target multiple truncal mutations. If you could target multiple truncal mutations, then actually mathematically resistance might be impossible. 
and that you would be able to annihilate the tumour and that clonal neoantigens might be the window into a new world to do just that. And so between us, we thought, well, let's pitch this idea to Iraj. And, and Iraj loved it. From the word go, he totally got it. He could see this was bold, this was brave, this was exciting, this was novel, this was mad. Um, but he got the fact that if anything was going to work, this might just hold the key. I guess the rest is history. I mean, we haven't proven it works yet. But what I can say is the thesis behind truncal neoantigens has become stronger over the years. And we just need now to um, um, expand these T cells and give them back to patients. And, and these trials are currently ongoing. And hopefully in the next 18 months, we'll know the answer. So this is autologous. So you're finding T cells in patients that are sensitive, not to just to one, but to multiple uh, truncal mutations. You take them out of the body, you expand them in a bioreactor, you give them back to the patient, you observe them over the time. And what you hope is not only does it treat the cancer, but it's a durable response. That's right. You've got it. We will be watching out for your, your trial readouts in the coming 18 months. And I really hope that this is great news, not just for lung cancer patients, non-small cell lung cancer patients, uh, but I'm also aware that um, Tracer X has a renal path. I didn't realize actually that it originally started with a renal tumor. Uh, and I really hope that this will be a platform that will benefit, um, you know, pan tumor. I hope so too. Great. So, and that was a really, really great deep dive into, I think, some of the exciting moments of your career. I think just having you on the G word, it would be remiss of me not to ask you some of the, uh, some kind of rapid fire questions about the other hot topics um, in cancer. So I'd, I'd, let's just rattle a few through some of the uh, exciting things that people in your field and mine like to talk about in the bar after work. Um, early detection is a good one. So you've been focusing mostly on metastatic late stage cancer, uh, but many people would say that the most important impact we're going to make on cancer in the coming years is to detect it early before the cancer develops metastatic capacity. So tell me, can you see a future where in a few years from now, perhaps every young adult, an adult um, has a blood test every year uh, looking for circulating tumor markers um, and is constantly surveilling their body to avoid uh, cancers developing to begin with or maturing? I, I think that future is very likely now. Um, and indeed, in the US, it's already happening. Um, people are buying these commercial assays already. I'm, I'm actually chief investigator of the NHS gallery trial, which is putting this to the test. It's one of the world's largest screening programs. 140,000 patients will be recruited. These are well individuals with no uh, symptoms of cancer who will be randomized to screen versus not screened. And those with a positive test in the screening arm will have the results fed back and they will um, undergo uh, investigation on the cancer two-week wait pathway. That's already recruiting um, incredibly well. It should read out in the next sort of two and a half years. So I'm very excited about that. But it's like everything. I think advances in cancer will come from multiple angles. This will be, I hope, one component, but it won't be the only component. And I think the older I get and the more time I spend studying the complexity of advanced disease, I think we absolutely have to invest more in prevention and early diagnosis. I, I am excited about early diagnosis, but there are a lot of people working in early diagnosis, but I'm particularly excited and interested in prevention and actually the interface between prevention and early diagnosis, which is, I, I, I refer to, and many others refer to as interception, where you can understand the impact of um, the environment, the local environment, the microenvironment, and the broader external environment on the first cell will ultimately initiate cancer. Understanding how and why that first cell becomes invasive or ultimately becomes invasive and malignant is, is a crucial question. And I think there's a lot of excitement there. And we, we've got some, if you watch the space, some pretty exciting stuff emerging in the lab at the moment on exactly that subject. So let's come back to prevention. Uh, that is a thrilling subject. And the gallery trial you were referring to was from this uh, fantastic uh, US company called Grail, which is using bisulfate methylation markers to target um, uh, early, early signs of cancer in the peripheral blood system. And it's kind of part of the liquid biopsy world. Um, and there are many, many companies doing um, liquid biopsy, not just with methylation markers, but looking actually at the DNA in, in um, DNA fragments and increasingly large DNA panels. And that's being used um, increasingly diagnostically and for surveillance post remission. Um, how do you see liquid biopsy playing a role in the clinic? 
Oh, I, I, I think liquid biopsies will continue to play an increasingly important role over the next 10, 20 years, particularly as sequencing gets cheaper. I, I think liquid biopsies are going to play a role in early diagnosis, in minimal residual disease monitoring, an area that we're particularly interested in, done a lot of work in, and advanced disease where one will be looking at um, you know, the waxing and waning of subclones in, in real time and hopefully adapting therapy accordingly. So I, I think it's, you know, we know that liquid biopsies provides a sort of broader um, overview of the complex clonal structures of tumours than a single biopsy. And as our therapies improve and our ability to target branches as, as they emerge improves, I hope um, liquid biopsies will play a you know, major role in, in, in the direction of the right therapies to the right patient at the right time. Exciting. And then moving to the more esoteric, uh, there's been some fascinating papers recently about the gut biome and the potential even to use bacteria to uh, immunomodulate um, cancer response, even some evidence that in melanoma and cataractal uh, non-responders can be converted into responders. Uh, these are patients with checkpoint inhibitors uh, with uh, fecal matter transplants. What, what do you think of that field? I think it's staggering. I really do. And very, very exciting. And I think speaks to an area that we're very interested in at CRUK. And you'll, you'll be aware of the cancer grand challenge questions, one of which is cancer cachexia. It's, it's understanding how the whole body interacts with the tumor and vice versa. Um, um, we're only, you know, because of the tools we've had available in the last 50 years, we've been very focused on the tumour as, as a single entity. We've been much less focused on the broader interactions between the host and the tumour. And I think, you know, what we'd like to see over the next sort of decade or two is a, is a sort of increasing understanding of how the host, the microbiome, the tumour interacts with the host through neuronal connections. We know from Leanne Lee's work and others that there is neuronal innovation in tumours and that neuronal-like connections can make tumours metastatic. The complexity of the interaction between the tumour and the host, I think we're only just beginning to scratch the surface of. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about how the tumour may alter the metabolic functions of a patient, how the tumour may influence, for instance, muscle or fat to be lost and met and and metabolized catabolized i should say to, to perhaps fuel tumor growth and and the and the neuronal and um endocrine connections between the tumor and host and you've brought the subject up of the microbiome how that might influence tumor growth the immune system and response to therapies is an extraordinarily interesting area to be working in and one that's very much in its infancy but i think over the next 20 years, we'll begin to explore in much, much greater depth that will be of huge benefit to patients, I'm sure. Just to give people a sense of the complexity this introduces, I mean, we already know that a cancer tumour interacts with the germline, the inherited um, germline for the parents. We know that cancers are metastatic, they grow throughout the body, they're heterogeneous, as Charlie's talked about. Uh, they are subject to chemical modification by markers like um, uh, bisulfate methylation, which Grail uses. Um, and now it appears, oh, and of course, they, they interact with the immune system, which is the basis of much of Charlie's work. But now it appears that they also interact with, I believe, the 10 to the 14 bacteria taxa, which sit in our gut, uh, a completely foreign body. Many people have described the human as, a, as actually a, a small human hanging off the edge of a, of a gut microbiome. So it's the, the, the additional degrees of freedom and complexity that the biome adds to this space is just overwhelming and uh, clearly um, presents a big computational challenge for us as well. Um, so John, you, you mentioned before um, um, prevention, and that often makes you think of screening. Um, so in genomics England, we look at rare diseases, which are often monogenic, and you look at uh, cancers, which are at least multigenic. Some people are positing that there are polygenic um, predispositions to cancer, um, and that we can use polygenic risk scores to, to more intelligently screen and um, and stratify patients in that world. Uh, is, is that a field that you think uh, shows promise? I, I think in other diseases, yes. I, I think in cancer, it's much more challenging. I think if you follow work from Richard Halston and Claire Turnbull, who had a very nice paper on this recently, I mean, it seems from their work um, that PRS, uh, polygenic risk scores, may not, re not, may not be the answer. Um, at least they may not be ready for clinical prime time. Um, and 
you know, when you talk, they talk about what's called the AUC, which which gives you some measure of uh, the accuracy of a test, uh, you know, and its sensitivity and specificity. And and the the point they make is the the AUCs are are very very low. The take home message from their work is that probably not quite um, at the level where they would really influence clinical decision making for the better. So my I'm not an expert in the in the area of germline genetics, so I'd rather not comment. But I think from I think it would be important to talk to them. But I think the my, my impression is they're less exciting in oncology than they are in other disease areas. Okay, that's very, very interesting. It's an area that is being looked into. I have read that paper. It's excellent. And uh, it's also very short uh, and readable, <laughs> which I like too. Okay, I mean, we have covered a very large ground and I've, uh, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Um, perhaps I could just end by asking you uh, one straightforward question, which is if there were one person in the cancer community that you would like to hear me interview next anywhere in the world, uh, who would you like to hear me ask onto the G word? Oh, gosh. Um, I think Harold Varmus would be a good person to speak to, to hear a bit more about the history of early molecular biology uh, and the discovery of many of these early oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes that really changed our view of cancer and to think about where we're heading over the next 20 years. I think he'd give you a, a marvelous interview and discussion about his career and what he's done. Excellent. Well, Harold can expect my call. Thank you for that suggestion, Charlie. So really, that is all for our episode. It's been nearly an hour. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you all for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implication of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society and cancer research. Uh, you can find out more about Charlie Swanton online uh, on the website of the Crick Institute and also UCL's website. If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind that you'd like us to interview next, please do write to us at podcast.genomicsengland.co.uk. Uh, remember to, to subscribe to The G Word uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Uh, and if you've enjoyed listening, please give us a five-star review, which really helps other people find the series. Uh, we really appreciate your support. Uh, and most of all today, Charlie, I really do uh, thank you. And I'm really grateful and honored that you've come to join us for an hour of your Friday afternoon this week. So thank you very much to you. And thank you for our listeners to listening to The G Word.